This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Dennis Johnson called Two Men. The jolt of fear had burned all the red out of my blood. I was like rubber. I'll go after him then. Let's just have it out. Two Men was chosen by Salvatore Scabona, whose story The Kid was featured in The New Yorker's recent 20 Under 40 fiction issue. Scabona is the author of the novel The End, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2009, and he's the winner of the Young Lions Award from the New York Public Library. Hi, Salvatore. Hi, Deborah. So when did you first encounter Johnson's work? What, what impression did it make on you? I think I first read his poems. I was reading that collection of uh, three of his books put together. I was walking down a street in Iowa City where he's a kind of um, presiding spirit. and um, <laughs> Demigod. Yeah, yeah. And as I was reading the book, and I held the book a couple of inches away from my chest as I was reading, a bird defecated right on my shirt between my eyes and the and the book. <laughs> and it's good luck. It's, it's, it seemed like it was – I decided that it was a very positive omen. But I loved those poems just helplessly. And then I started reading his fiction after that. And what did you read? Did you read Jesus' Son? Or? I think I read Jesus' Son. And then I went back and read the earlier novels and then Tree of Smoke a couple of years ago. Well, and this is actually the second time that we are doing a Dennis Johnson story on this podcast. Last year, Tobias Wolf read the story Emergency, which, like two men, was was in that 1992 collection, Jesus' Son. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little about what your impressions of that book were? I think it's kind of miraculous. I feel as though um, everything that you think about what a story has to do is in some way importantly violated by <laughs> by this book and it doesn't matter. He takes utterly wild swings within the narrative. He has characters with whom it's absolutely impossible to sympathize. And it all works out because the prose is headlong, you know. I mean, the prose is just moving as fast as thought. The cumulative experience of the book is an experience of hyper-reality. And what is it about two men that, that jumped out? I think the ending is unlike the ending of any story I've ever read, and it leaves you with a kind of emotional pitch that just continues to reverberate for, in my case, for years after I first read the story, and it never goes away. Every time I've read the story, I've been left with the same sense of chill Mm -hmm. and fear. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Salvatore Scabona reading Two Men by Dennis Johnson. I met the first man as I was going home from a dance at the Veterans of Foreign Wars Hall. I was being taken out of the dance by my two good friends. I had forgotten my friends had come with me, but they were there. Once again, I hated the two of them. The three of us had formed a group based on something erroneous, some basic misunderstanding that hadn't yet come to light, and so we kept on in one another's company, going to bars and having conversations. Generally, one of these false coalitions died after a day or a day and a half, but this one had lasted more than a year. Later on, one of them got hurt when we were burglarizing a pharmacy, and the other two of us dropped him bleeding at the back entrance of the hospital, and he was arrested, and all the bonds were dissolved. We bailed him out later, and still later all the charges against him were dropped, but we'd torn open our chests and shown our cowardly hearts, 
and you can never stay friends after something like that. This evening at the Veterans of Foreign Wars Hall, I'd backed a woman up behind the huge air conditioning unit while we were dancing and kissed her and unbuttoned her pants and put my hand down the front of them. She'd been married to a friend of mine until about a year before, and I'd always thought we'd probably get mixed up together, but her boyfriend, a mean, skinny, intelligent man who I happened to feel inferior to, came around the corner of the machine and glowered at us and told her to go out and get in the car. I was afraid he'd take some kind of action, but he disappeared just as quickly as she did. The rest of the evening I wondered every second if he would come back with some friends and make something painful and degrading happen. I was carrying a gun, but it wasn't as if I would actually have used it. It was so cheap I was sure it would explode in my hands if I ever pulled the trigger. So it could only add to my humiliation. Afterwards, people, usually men, talking to women in my imagination, would say, He had a gun, but he never took it out of his pants. I drank as much as I could until the Western combo stopped singing and playing and the lights came up. My two friends and I went to get into my little green Volkswagen, and we discovered the man I started to tell you about, the first man, sleeping deeply in the back seat. Who's this? I asked my two friends, but they'd never seen him before either. We got him awake, and he sat up. He was something of a hulk, not so tall that his head hit the roof, but really broad, with a thick face and close-cropped hair. He wouldn't get out of the car. This man pointed to his own ears and to his mouth, signaling that he couldn't hear or talk. What do you do in a situation like this? I said. Well, I'm getting in. Move over, Tom said to the man, and got in the back seat with him. Richard and I got in the front. We all three turned to the new companion. He pointed straight ahead and then laid his cheek on his hands, indicating Betty by. He just wants a ride home, I guessed. So, Tom said, give him a ride home. Tom had such sharp features that his moods looked even worse than they were. Using sign language, the passenger showed us where to take him. Tom relayed the directions because I couldn't see the man while I was driving. Take a right, a left here, he wants you to slow down. He's looking for the place, and like that. We drove with the windows down. The mild spring evening, after several frozen winter months, was like a foreigner breathing in our faces. We took our passenger to a residential street where the buds were forcing themselves out of the tips of branches and the seeds were moaning in the gardens. He was as bulky as an ape, we saw when he was out of the car and dangled his hands as if he might suddenly go down and start walking on his knuckles. He glided up the walk of one particular home and banged on the door. A light went on in the second story. The curtain moved, and the light went out. He was back at the car, thumping on the roof with his hand, before I got the thing in gear to pull away and leave him. He draped himself over the front of my VW and seemed to pass out. Wrong house, maybe, Richard suggested. I can't navigate with him like that, I said. Take off, Richard said, and slam on the brakes. The brakes aren't working, Tom told Richard. The emergency brake works, I assured everybody. Tom had no patience. All you have to do is move this car and he'll fall off. I don't want to hurt him. We ended it by hefting him into the back seat where he slumped against the window. Now we were stuck with him again. 
Tom laughed sarcastically. We all three lit cigarettes. Here comes Kaplan to shoot off my legs, I said, looking in terror at a car as it came around the corner and then passed by. I was sure it was him, I said, as its taillights disappeared down the block. Are you still all worried about Alsatia? I was kissing her. There's no law against that, Richard said. It's not her lawyer I'm worried about. I don't think Kaplan's that serious about her. Not enough to kill you or anything like that. What do you think about all this? I asked our drunken buddy. He started snoring ostentatiously. This guy isn't really deaf, are you? Hey, Tom said. What do we do with him? Take him home with us. Not me, I said. One of us should, anyway. He lives right there, I insisted. You could tell by the way he knocked. I got out of the car. I went to the house and rang the doorbell and stepped back off the porch, looking up at the overhead window in the dark. The white curtain moved again, and a woman said something. Oliver was invisible except the shadow of her hand on the curtain's border. If you don't take him off our street, I'm calling the police. I was so flooded with yearning I thought it would drown me. Her voice broke off and floated down. I've got the phone now. Now I'm dialing she called down softly. I thought I heard a car's engine somewhere not too far away. I ran back to the street. What is it? Richard said as I got in. Headlights came around the corner. A spasm ran through me so hard it shook the car. Jesus, I said. The interior filled up with light so that for two seconds you could have read a book. The shadows of dust streaks on the windshield striped Tom's face. It's nobody. Richard said, and the dark closed up again as whoever it was went past. Kaplan doesn't know where you are anyway. The jolt of fear had burned all the red out of my blood. I was like rubber. I'll go after him then. Let's just have it out. Maybe he doesn't care or I don't know. What do I know? Tom said. Why are we even talking about him? Maybe he forgives you, Richard said. Oh, God, if he does, then we're comrades and so on forever, I said. All I'm asking is just punish me and get it over with. The passenger wasn't defeated. He gestured all over the place, touching his forehead and his armpits and gyrating somewhat in place like a baseball coach signaling his players. Look, I said, I know you can talk. Don't act like we're stupid. He directed us through this part of town and then over near the train tracks where hardly anybody lived. Here and there were shacks with dim lights inside them, sunk to the bottom of all this darkness. But the house he had me stop in front of got no light except from the street lamp. Nothing happened when I honked the horn. The man we were helping just sat there. All this time he'd voiced plenty of desires but hadn't said a word. More and more he began to seem like somebody's dog. I'll take a look, I told him making my voice cruel. It was a small wooden house with two posts for a clothesline out front. The grass had grown up and been crushed by the snows and then uncovered by the thaw. Without bothering to knock, I went around to the window and looked in. There was one chair all by itself at an oval table. The house looked abandoned. No curtains, no rugs. All over the floor there were shiny things I thought might be spent flashbulbs or empty bullet casings. But it was dark, and nothing was clear. 
I peered around until my eyes were tired and I thought I could make out designs all over the floor like the chalk outlines of victims or markings for strange rituals. Why don't you go in there, I asked the guy when I got back to the car. Just go look, you faker, you loser. He held up one finger. One. What? One. One. He wants to go one more place, Richard said. We already went one more place. This place right here. And it was just bogus. What do you want to do, Tom said. Oh, let's just take him wherever he wants to go. I didn't want to go home. My wife was different than she used to be, and we had a six-month-old baby I was afraid of, a little son. The next place we took him to stood all by itself out on the old highway. I'd been out this road more than once, a little farther every time, and I'd never found anything that made me happy. Some of my friends had had a farm out here, but the police had raided the place and put them all in jail. This house didn't seem to be part of a farm... It was about two-tenths of a mile off the old highway, its front porch edged right up against the road. When we stopped in front of it and turned off the engine, we heard music coming from inside. Jazz. It sounded sophisticated and lonely. We all went up to the porch with the silent man. He knocked on the door. Tom, Richard, and I flanked him at a slight, a very subtle distance. As soon as the door opened, he pushed his way inside. We followed him in and stopped, but he headed right into the next room. We didn't get any farther inside than the kitchen. The next room past that was dim and blue-lit, and inside it, through the doorway, we saw a loft, almost a gigantic bunk bed, in which several ghost-complected women were lying around. One just like those came through the door from that room and stood looking at the three of us with her mascara blurred and her lipstick kissed away. She wore a skirt, but not a blouse, just a white bra like someone in an undies ad in a teenage magazine. But she was older than that. Looking at her, I thought of going out in the fields with my wife back when we were so in love we didn't know what it was. She wiped her nose, a sleepy gesture. Inside of two seconds, she was closely attended by a black man slapping the palm of his hand with a pair of gloves, a very large man looking blindly down at me with the invulnerable smile of someone on dope. The young woman said, If you'd called ahead, we would have encouraged you not to bring him. Her companion was delighted. That's a beautiful way of saying it. In the room behind her, the man we'd brought stood like a bad sculpture, posing unnaturally with his shoulders wilting as if he couldn't lug his gigantic hands any farther. "'What the hell is his problem?' Richard asked. "'It doesn't matter what his problem is until he's fully understood it himself,' the man said. Tom laughed, in a way. "'What does he do?' Richard asked the girl. "'He's a real good football player, or anyhow he was.' Her face was tired. She couldn't have cared less." He's still good. He's still on the team, the black man said. He's not even in school. But he could get back on the team if he was. But he'll never be in school because he's fucked, man, and so are you. He flicked one of his gloves back and forth. I know that now. Thank you, baby. You dropped your other glove, she said. Thank you, babe. I know that too, he said. A big, muscular boy with fresh cheeks and a blonde flat top came over and joined us. 
I felt he was the host because he gripped the handle of a green beer mug almost the size of a waste paper basket with a swastika and a dollar sign painted on it. This personalized touch made him seem right at home, like Hugh Hefner circulating around the Playboy cocktail parties in his pajamas. He smiled at me and shook his head. He can't stay. Tammy doesn't want him here. Okay, whoever Tammy is, I said. Around these strange people, I felt hungry. I smelled some kind of debauchery, the whiff of a potion that would banish everything plaguing me. Now would be a good time to take him out of here, the big host said. What's his name, anyway? Stan. Stan. Is he really deaf? The girl snorted. The boy laughed and said, that's a good one. Richard punched my arm and glanced at the door, indicating we should go. I realized that he and Tom were afraid of these people, and then I was too. Not that they'd do anything to us, but around them we felt almost like stupid failures. The woman hurt me. She looked so soft and perfect, like a mannequin made of flesh, flesh all the way through. Let's ditch him right now, I cried, hurrying out the door. I was already in the driver's seat, and Tom and Richard were halfway down the walk before Stan came out of the house. Lose him! Lose him! Tom yelled, getting in after Richard, but the man already had a grip on the door handle by the time I'd started pulling away. I goosed it, but he wouldn't give up. He even managed to keep a slight lead and look around right at me through the front window, keeping up a psychotic eye contact and wearing a sarcastic smile, as if to say he'd be with us forever, running faster and faster, puffing out clouds of breath. After fifty yards as we neared the stop sign at the main road, I really gunned it, hoping to wrench free, but all I did was yank him right into the stop sign. His head hit it first, and the post broke off, like a green stalk and he fell, sprawling all over it. The wood must have been rotten. Lucky for him. We left him behind, a man staggering around a crossroads where a stop sign used to stand. I thought I knew everyone in town, Tom said, but those people are completely new to me. They used to be jocks, but now they're heads, Richard said. Football people? I didn't know they ever got like that. Tom was looking backward down the road. I stopped the car and we all looked back. A quarter mile behind us, Stan paused among the fields in the starlight, in the posture of somebody who had a pounding hangover or was trying to fit his head back onto his neck. But it wasn't just his head, it was all of him that had been cut off and thrown away. No wonder he didn't hear or speak. No wonder he didn't have anything to do with words. Everything along those lines was used up. We stared at him and felt like old maids. He, on the other hand, was the bride of death. We took off. Never got him to say a word. All the way back to town, Tom and I criticized him. You just don't realize, being a cheerleader, being on the team, it doesn't guarantee anything. Anybody can take a turn for the worse, said Richard, who'd been a high school quarterback or something himself. As soon as we hit the city limits where the chain of street lamps began, I was back to wondering about and fearing Kaplan. I'd better just go after him instead of waiting, I suggested to Tom. Who? Who do you think? Will you forget it? It's over. Seriously. Yeah, okay, okay. We drove up Burlington Street. We passed the all-night gas station at the corner of Clinton. A man was handing money to the attendant, 
both of them standing by his car in an eerie sulfur light. Those sodium arc lamps were new in our town then, and the pavement around them was spangled with oil stains that looked green, while his old Ford was no color at all. You know who that was? I told Tom and Richard. That was Thatcher. I made a U-turn as quickly as I could. So what? Tom said. So this, I said, producing the thirty-two I'd never fired. Richard laughed. I don't know why. Tom laid his hands on his knees and sighed. Thatcher was back in his car by this time. I pulled up to the pumps going the other direction and rolled down my window. I bought one of those phony kilos you were selling for two ten right around last New Year's. You don't know me because what's-his-name was selling them for you. I doubt he heard me. I showed him the pistol. Thatcher's tires gave a yip as he took off in his corroded falcon. I didn't think I'd catch him in the VW, but I spun it around after him. The stuff he sold me was a burn, I said. Didn't you try it first? Richard said. It was weird stuff. Well, if you tried it, he said. It seemed all right, and then it wasn't. It wasn't just me. Everybody else said so, too. He's losing you. Thatcher had hooked very suddenly between two buildings. I couldn't find him as we exited the alley onto another street, but up ahead I saw a patch of old snow go pink in somebody's brake lights. He's turned that corner, I said. When we rounded the building, we found his car parked, empty, in back of an apartment house. A light went on in one of the apartments and then went off. I'm two seconds behind him. The feeling that he was afraid of me was invigorating. I left the VW in the middle of the parking lot with the door open and the engine on and the headlights burning. Tom and Richard were behind me as I ran up the first flight of stairs and banged on the door with the gun. I knew I was in the right place. I banged again. A woman in a white nightgown opened it, backing away and saying, Don't. All right. All right. All right. Thatcher must have told you to answer or you never would have opened the door, I said. Jim? He's out of town. She had long black hair and a ponytail. Her eyeballs were positively shaking in her head. Get him, I said. He's in California. He's in the bedroom. I backed her up, moving toward her behind the mouth of the gun. I've got two kids here, she begged. I don't care. Get on the floor. She got down, and I pushed the side of her face into the rug and laid the gun against her temple. Thatcher was going to come out or I didn't know what. I've got her on the floor in here, I called back toward the bedroom. My kids are sleeping, she said. The tears ran out of her eyes and over the bridge of her nose. Suddenly and stupidly, Richard walked right down the hall and into the bedroom. Flagrant, self-destructive gestures, he was known for them. There's nobody back here but two little kids. Tom joined him. He climbed out the window, he called back to me. I took two steps over to the living room window and looked down onto the parking lot. I couldn't tell for certain, but it looked like Thatcher's car was gone. The woman hadn't moved. She just lay there on the rug. He's really not here, she said. I knew he wasn't. I don't care. You're going to be sorry, I said. That was Salvatore Scabona reading Two Men by Dennis Johnson. The story was published in The New Yorker in 1988 and collected in Jesus' Son in 1992. So, Salvatore, when we were first talking about this story, you said, I'll quote you, it hooks our sympathies to a person who finally does something utterly horrid and then somehow leaves the reader with the blame. 
What did you mean by that? How does the reader become implicated? First of all, it's in the first person. And you think this is another sort of down-on-his-luck drunk that you naturally share feelings with. I think it's sort of hard for a story to keep the reader out that way because the writer is providing sort of half of the narrator's subjectivity, but the reader is providing the other half, I think, if it's done expertly. So you kind of get tricked into thinking that this is a person who you can understand, who you feel somewhat like. And then as the story progresses, you find that he's without quite having warned you, he's sort of taken your own morality and twisted it into this direction that you never would have um, agreed to if you'd known ahead of time. And it's very much like a nightmare that way, where you sort of think, I'm a decent human being, and then you find yourself cutting the head off of some animal in the dream, and suddenly you think, how could I have done this thing? Mm -hmm. I just have never read a story that does that so expertly as this one does. And why do we like this narrator? He does something awful and just about every step of the way, you know, tells us he's robbed a pharmacy, he sticks his friend with his charge. The first scene, he's feeling up somebody else's girlfriend, and then at some point we find out he's got a wife and baby at home, he's just avoiding them. And we still kind of go with him, at least for for the bulk of the story. Yeah, I think there's a difference between liking the narrator and sympathizing with him. Mm -hmm. This character doesn't seem anxious to be liked. In fact, there's a wonderful line from Johnson's novel, the name of the world, where the character says, and I realized that what I most required of a work of art was that its agenda, is that the word I want, not include me. <laughs> and I think that, that that's sort of a credo for all of Johnson's work. You never feel as though he has an agenda to charm you or to beguile you or anything like that. He's, he's far enough away that you have a lot of space to provide your part of the subjectivity of the character. So I feel it's irrelevant when I read this story whether I like the character. I just feel that I recognize him enough that I start to participate in his judgments. And, well, I want him to do one thing. I want him to do another thing. I actually want him to get rid of this guy who's so aggravating to him. And then when he when he does, it's so rash and reckless that I start, sort of start to doubt whether I ought to be putting my putting myself in this guy's hands. At least that moment where he, you know, the the guy hits the stop sign can sort of seem like an accident. It wasn't exactly what he was intending to do. He was just trying to shake the guy, and it was sort of the guy's fault. What happens at the end is not an accident. No, no. I think the ending, um, he does not conclude the story. And another kind of story, I think a writer who is more who's more anxious to charm and whose goal was to just get you to feel an emotion and then to resolve the emotion for you, that writer would have let the story go on a little bit longer and let us find out what this guy does to this woman. In Johnson's case, he sort of hands you this horrid emotion. And then by stopping the story, he forces you to take to walk away with it. And in a way, he wants you to make up your own ending. I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of things could end okay. Yeah. You know, he could change his mind and walk out. Yeah. Or things could go terribly wrong. What, what do you think is going to happen? It's curious. I don't immediately wonder what will happen next. I immediately wonder what I'm going to do with this terrifying, nightmarish, violent capacity that I've just discovered in myself. Mm, right. And when I start to imagine what will happen, it's usually in some way uh, an attempt to console myself for having been involved in this story in some way, it seems to me that he's about to um, 
at least beat her up, but probably something worse. It turns the story into a kind of earworm so that you can't get it out of your head, you know, like a song that you can't get out of your head, and that's usually because mm -hmm. you can't bring the song to its conclusion. They always say the cure for an earworm, if you get a song into your head, is to sing it out loud to yourself all the way through to the end. If you get <laughs> to that, that last note, it will conclude for you. It's because you can't conclude it that it stays with you. And that is what makes him such a great writer. He is willing to leave you with things that will maybe not satisfy you in the most conventional way, but they are going to stay there in your mind and do their work for a long time. Why do you think the narrator reaches this point at the end of the story? You know, he, he sort of shows compassion to this horrible ape-like guy. He doesn't want to drive off when he's leaning on the hood. He doesn't want to hurt him. He takes him to these three different places. He's impatient, but he is to some point compassionate. And then suddenly he, he hits this ending where the compassion flies out the window. Yeah. Has he used up everything he has? Has he wasted it all on this sort of unworthy character? I think it has something to do with women. The moments in the story when he uh, is displaying some kind of compassion, it's really reluctant, and it's not that tender. But there are these earlier moments in the story. There's that line, back when we were so in love, we didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And then when he sees the woman inside the um, the house with the football players, he's describing her, her body in a way that portrays the, the narrator as really woundable. By a woman, so it seemed. I got the sense that um, when he was in this male drinking, carousing, drug dealing society, he was safe. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of the New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. In some way. And just the presence of a woman talking to him was enough to expose all of the tumult inside his heart. There's that very surprising moment at the first house where the the woman's saying she's going to call the police and he's suddenly flooded with yearning. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Here she is threatening him and he's he sort of enters this kind of dreamlike fugue state. And a, a lot of that book is uh, full of moments like that. I think I imagine some people would read read the book and feel as though the the women don't come off very well because they're all sort of projections of the narrator's imagination of an, a kind of ideal woman. I suppose my reading of the story is that the character's need for a woman's comfort is so deep that he can't allow himself to feel it. And when that woman is on the floor pleading with him, it's that emotional communication that he finds uh, intolerable and he'll do anything that he can to shut her up. Well, going back to men, why does, why does Johnson connect these two men? What is it that links them 
if you outlined this story and tried to describe it to somebody, it would not seem to be coherent, right? What does this first guy have to do with the second guy? But within the context of the story, there's an emotional economy that builds up the attempt to do something nice for the first guy and the frustration with the first guy and ultimately the, um, you know, the willingness to abandon that guy. It sort of plays itself out without ever getting resolved and then that emotion is transferred to the second guy. When that relationship fails in some way because he can't find him, he can't go beat him up, then it has to be transferred again and it's transferred to this woman, this unlucky woman. One of the things that he does that's so brilliant, he makes the story necessary. There's no way of making sense of this kind of reckless action, this reckless behavior outside the context of a narrative that sort of implicates you and shows you how the emotion can transfer from one object to another object to another object. We read stories about this in the newspaper all the time and right? Someone commits some crime and you wonder what could the motivation possibly be? And a story like this really, it makes what would otherwise be a completely unlikely series of events. It makes that story not just coherent, but inevitable. And of course, it's all fueled also by by his paranoia about a third man who might be coming for him. Right, right, (laughs) right, exactly. I mean, that's that's one thing about all of Johnson's stories in this collection anyway, is that they at first, they seem sort of tossed off. They seem random. And when he's talked about them, he's referred to them as, you know, stories you tell someone in a bar. Yeah. And kind of denied that they were controlled in any way. But the more you read them, the more the more evident that control becomes. I would really like to know what the truth is behind all that. <laughs> I mean, really, because either he's lying and, in fact, tremendous deliberation went into every line in the story or his unconscious is the most eloquent unconscious in the world, you know? <laughs> He's an unconscious genius, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Well, you know, then you look at look at the bigger novels like Tree of Smoke, which are incredibly carefully structured. Yes. And you know that he's got that skill lurking, so... Well, there's more engineering. I mean, the longer a story or a novel is, I think the more, the more foregrounded the engineering gets. Mm-hmm. And these stories are so short that they can leave us with the impression that there's no engineering at all. And I, I suspect that that's one of the reasons he kept them that way, was so that he yeah. could just sort of give us this impression, this impression that he was just freely talking. I was a student of Marilyn Robinson's a long time ago, mm-hmm. and she said in a workshop one time, control is what produces the illusion of freedom. <laughs> and uh, that's the real technical question about this story, whether he's actually executing control to produce the illusion of freedom or whether he really is free when he writes. Well, there's one. There's a freedom for me in in just the language itself. You know, this sort of combination of this intense tough guy aesthetic, and then absolutely fearlessly he throws in these lyrical moments. Yeah, and and these moments of. I mean, I, I will never forget as long as I live the last paragraph of the book. You know, this book, which is full of terrible, reckless violence and foolishness and callousness. And the last line, the, the guy's, I guess he's, he's in rehab, I think. And the last paragraph goes, all these weirdos, in me getting a little better every day right in the midst of them, I had never known, never even imagined for a heartbeat that there might be a place for people like us. I mean, 
how a person can write a book that has so much mindless violence and so much overwhelming compassion. And he does that all the time. A Tree of Smoke is like that also. The ending of Tree of Smoke is, it really echoes that. Now, in your story, The Kid, which just appeared in the, the fiction issue, you have a character who seems basically sympathetic and, and who does something terrible as well and something terrible to a child. Were you thinking about this story or were you thinking, thinking about the kind of response that Johnson's story gets from the reader? Unconsciously, I probably was. In an interview with uh, Roman Polanski that I, that I heard recently, he was talking about this question of resolving all of the emotional questions at the end of a story or not resolving them. And um, he said, uh, when you have an ending that answers all the reader's questions, it's as though you're handing the reader a piece of food and then you're taking the food into your mouth and chewing it all up for him and then, <laughs> you know, and then uh, vomiting it back into the person's mouth so that, you know, they have had no experience of the food at all. They've, you should take taking care of everything for them. And I very much wanted to um, make a story that has a, a clear beginning, middle and an end, but that left the reader holding the bag in some way. Not just to say, reader, it's up to you to determine what happens, but reader, I'm not going to hold the emotion that the story creates for you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave you with it. And uh, that's something I definitely take away from the Johnson story. Well, thank you, Salvatore. Thank you, Deborah. This is a lot of fun. You can read Salvatore Scabona's story, The Kid, in the June 14th and 21st issue of the magazine and online at newyorker.com. If you're listening to this program online, you can subscribe and download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Just do a search for New Yorker. Let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.